QR code, a queer health series exploring diverse and intersecting community issues. My name's James McKenzie. In this episode, we explore queer conversion practices and ideology. Please be aware, this episode includes discussions about homophobia, transphobia, violence and suicide and may distress some listeners. My name's Nathan Despot. I grew up in Melbourne, grew up in a Maltese Catholic family and uh, when I was 18... Um, through some friends, I entered the evangelical Christian world as a young person, uh, then spent the next 10 years of my life in a conservative evangelical community or communities. And a large part of that was um, being part of the what was called, I guess, the ex-gay conversion movement or conversion practices. I think there's a lot of uh, misconceptions around conversion practices. Uh, Sometimes you'll hear the term gay conversion therapy. A lot of my advocacy work has been to change the language so that we don't say gay conversion therapy anymore because it's a bit of a, a misunderstanding and it conjures images of these very fetishized ideas of people seeing psychologists or psychiatrists or being part of group programs or electroshock therapy. And that's not really what happens. It hasn't really happened for a very long time, particularly in Australia. You hear of situations, you know, one or two here or there, um, but that's not really what I went through in my journey. And my journey was 2000 to 2010. So even back then, those things weren't very common. The way it started is the way it started for a lot of people that I know and a lot of people that Brave Network supports at the moment, which was conversations with pastors and, and ministers, I guess some people would call them, conversations with friends, conversations with the small groups or home groups or Bible study groups, depending on what people call them, with, with the leaders of those groups and with my peers, talking about my sexual orientation and then just gradually hearing that that was something that could be healed. And I hadn't really heard that before. And that, I guess, everything came from this idea that I was broken or had sexual brokenness, that something had gone wrong in my childhood, which in hindsight was pretty offensive to my parents, to be honest. <laughs> Although there are many people, I guess, who are LGBTIQA+, who go through the conversion movement, who have had probably shocking childhoods in many ways. And so for them, that message, I guess, would be even more seductive. For me, though, I, I took it on. And in many ways, I became the director of my own conversion practices. Even though I had prayer ministry with pastors, I joined small groups that would pray with me and talk with me about my sexual orientation and went to a couple of camps, went to conferences, was part of a couple of small conversion programs. Despite the fact that there were people leading those groups, in many ways I was really the director of my own, my own process and that is very common for people who go through conversion practices. I'm Ro. Where do I start? I was born way back in 1970 into a very evangelical, Christian, infamous Sydney Anglican environment, which is an interesting experience. Yeah, so for me, can, my conversion practices, were they were not formal. They were very informal but, but also very very intense. I came, I had a little coming out moment when I was about somewhere between three and five with my parents, which was a little bit like getting dressed up into mum's clothes and announcing myself with a big surprise. Needless to say, that didn't go down too well to a um, very staunch evangelical family that were very much about, uh, very rule driven, very much that kind of, these are the things you do in order to be right with God, whatever that means. And it's very much about, they use that term, um, working out your salvation, which is very much, in that environment, was very much, there's, um, there's long lists of things that you do do, and even longer lists of things that you don't do. 
And so that experience, I was greeted with a very much, a, oh no, this is no good. This is not happening. I was beaten by my father about it, which in my experience was a very common experience to have that happen anyway. Um, my father was quite violent, but that was their response. Initial response was, I'm all beat it out of them. When that didn't work, it continually ramped up in ways that were, you know, discussions with pastors, discussions with youth workers, discussions with whoever they could find, ensuring that any groups that I was involved in were groups that maintained the message of cisgender, straight, heteronormativity, and anything that was a divergence from that was just not acceptable, just not okay. Yeah, uh, my name's Katisha, or Tish, and I am currently studying a Master's of Divinity, uh, which is just a fancy word for theological studies or reading a lot of the Bible and discussing it a lot. And mostly I really enjoy that. I grew up in a Christian family like a lot of us. My dad's a lovely, lovely Baptist pastor. So I'm what we call a PK or pastor's kid. So the church was maybe one of the first places that I felt really comfortable. Like I loved growing up in the church. It's not everyone's experience and I recognize that I'm really lucky to have that experience. But for me, it was an incredible intergenerational community. Uh, there was a lot of people of all different ages that I got to hang out with and know well that were like family. You know, the people that bring you casseroles when you're sick. And, uh, you know, you make clay Bible figurines. I knew where all the best bickies were. We'd often like swing by the church and visit dad on the way home from school. So that's kind of how I like got into the Christian community is that it was just kind of what I lived and breathed. So I didn't really think about it. It's very familiar to me in a lot of ways. And in terms of the sort of conversion practices, it's kind of sometimes impossible to separate it out from a lot of Christian communities, unfortunately. So I never really thought about it, but like things like there just were never any gay people that I knew of. It was kind of a taboo topic. It wouldn't often come up. And if it did, it was never really anything positive. So my church was growing up was what we would now call welcoming. So to explain the difference between welcoming and affirming, welcoming churches are ones that uh, they say like, hey, we welcome everyone. Everyone is welcome to attend here, which sounds absolutely fabulous. And in many ways, it kind of is. But actually, often queer people, when they're really involved, realize that actually, I'm only welcome to a point. I'm not welcome to do certain ministries. I certainly wouldn't be welcome to preach up at the front in most welcoming churches. You know, they might let me do certain things like maybe collect offering or they'd certainly take my offerings, but they probably wouldn't let me say like look after the kids or do certain things like that. So that's welcoming churches. Like you're so welcome to attend. You're so welcome to give money. Maybe you're welcome to help them serve morning tea. Maybe you're welcome to do certain things, but you're certainly not welcome to hold a leadership position or do things that any other like you know, cis heterosexual member of the congregation could do. And there's still that underlying thing that you're not as good as the rest of them and that you're more broken than the rest of them. And it's actually kind of almost more harmful, I think, sometimes than non-affirming communities because it's not as clear. So you feel a lot more welcome and you're like, oh, but I'm really welcome and loved here. So it's a lot harder for people to leave welcoming congregations or to challenge them or to feel like there's anything actually wrong with them because you're like, oh, otherwise I'm really welcome and appreciated. They love my biscuits. Um, but sort of not considering as much actually, hang on, I'm still really internalizing these messages that I can't do all these other things and that I'm still broken and that I'm still lesser and I'm sinful and that is an incredibly difficult thing to internalize so growing up that's kind of what I internalized was the idea that I was kind of broken and lesser and that gay was something that you should not be 
My name is Abinub. I mean, you can call me Abba like the band without the singing. I'm the founder of Kumeka, which is queer Middle Eastern and African Christians in Australia. I'm an Orthodox Christian, a Coptic Christian, and that part of the world, queer people don't really exist as such. And so the idea of trying to cure oneself from a phase, so to speak, uh, happened. And the parish priest at the time said, you know, I know somebody that can help in that situation. And people have kind of been successful before, and he recommended me uh, to a senior psychiatrist, basically. Most of it was kind of the mind's kind of therapy, kind of confusing, tangling you, in a sense. That was basically most of it. There was no, you know, like, electrotherapy or that kind of stuff but the concept behind it was you're broken there's something wrong with you you need to be healed this is not natural doesn't exist in animals it's not god's plan and the mind is malleable like an elastic string you just have to reshape it and it'll be fixed uh how did it affect me well it's been five years since this happened it went on for a year and a half twice weekly in the evenings with a senior psychiatrist and the trauma is very much alive as if it was yesterday Depression, suicide, attempts, anxiety, uh, fear of oneself, being excluded from a community. Because once you come out as gay and you belong in a closed ethnic Christian community, you're naturally excluded from that place. So your belonging identity is completely removed. The, the concept is that you're forced to pick between faith or sexuality and yourself or your family. And neither of them are very pleasant choices as such. Part of the way, part of the journey involved uh, three or four years of counselling with a, you know, a paid counsellor that was part of a, a private counselling organisation, a business, but it was based out of a church. And what you will find is that a lot of those, um, a lot of counsellors who did sort of administer ex-gay or conversion practices did tend to work in counselling organisations that you might call Christian counselling organisations and often they were attached to churches even if you didn't know that there would usually be some sort of church involved or connected or they'd be co-located. I'm not aware of many of those existing at the moment but certainly for me that was that was the case. Um, I probably saw the counsellor once a fortnight for that period. Uh, in that time the counsellor helped me deal with a lot of my you know, issues that I'd been through in my life, a lot of the trauma of growing up and being bullied for being gay so some of it was helpful, and I think that's one of the difficult things is a lot of people that go through conversion practices have a bit of an attachment and a sense of nostalgia because in many ways they experienced a sense of warmth, comfort, and welcome from some of those um, those communities. But ultimately, the thought that was in my mind all the way through and the theme that we constantly came back to in my counselling was to do with my childhood and my upbringing. And clearly there was the narrative, and it was expressed by the counsellor at several points that you know he knew many people who were LGBTIQ who had had recovered or been healed of being being um, same sex attracted or trans. When we walk into the door of a faith community, we don't know whether that place is one that has evolved and is affirming of queer people, or whether that's a place that is going to send us a message that you're broken. And you need to be you need to be fixed. So we're going to pretend to love you, say that we love you, say that we welcome you. But all the while in the background, we're going to be praying for you and um, sending you a message of how you can become ex-gay or ex-trans, because that's the only way that you can genuinely be right with God and have a genuine relationship. And um, very much, there's a very lot, very strong narrative around 
being queer is a choice that you've made not not an innate part of who you are which allows them to run that narrative then of you're broken and you need to be fixed because if it's a choice then we don't have to face up to the fact that this is an innate part of who we who a person is and if we don't have to face up to that then we don't have to actually change what we're doing and and actually accept people for who they are so there's very much that narrative of and and it's an ideology you're broken you need to be fixed which it kind of dovetails out into not only are you broken but you're a sinner and you're going to hell because you're in this perpetual state of doing the wrong thing in our view. Yeah so I never went through formalized conversion therapy but I certainly was uh, impacted by sort of the conversion movement as a whole so I never thought I could be gay because I was a good Christian girl and I was like well it just doesn't happen to Christians like me, which was incredibly naive and I got what was coming to me. So it took me a really long time to realise that I was gay and speaking to a lot of women as well, it's really encouraged for a lot of like women and girls in the church to not be particularly sexual as well, to not really embrace your sexuality. Like it's really good if you're not attracted to men and it's kind of what's expected. So I thought I was nailing it. I was like, oh my goodness, so holy, not attracted, not lusting after the boys, doing a great job. So it wasn't really until my late teens that I was like, hang on a second, I'm not lasting after the boys, not because like Jesus has the perfect man that one day I'll magically be attracted to, but actually because I'm a bit gay. And so uh, it took me a while to come to terms with that. And part of, I guess, the conversion practices was that I did try to pray the gay away like a lot of people, but I never really told anyone until my theology later changed to affirming. But um, yeah, like a lot of people, I just tried to pray it away. I tried to... Yeah, hope it would change. I thought I would remain single for life or at least celibate. Like I thought I would never marry. I thought I would be like a Baptist nun was kind of my like late high school plan. Yeah, because I just I couldn't see a future marrying a man and I couldn't also see a future telling anyone that I was gay. So I was just like single or changing. I thought that they were my only two options. Yeah. And if we look culturally, say, for example, at what anyone from the Middle East to Africa would say the idea of shame is connected, the idea of family is connected. So it's not just about what happens to me as an individual, it's about what happens to my parents, my, you know, my two younger brothers, for example. Do they get disassociated from their group of friends and their social group because I'm gay? Is that a fair and reasonable thing? Of course not. I mean, I was saying this to someone the other day. I mean, if I went if I was, say, a Roman Catholic or a Protestant of some degree, I went down to St. Peter's down the road. I didn't like that. It was uncomfortable. I would just go to St. Paul's a few blocks down. No one knows who I am. But you can't do that in an Orthodox environment because everyone knows everybody. Everyone's in each other's pockets because it's a very close-knit community. So if you then identify as queer or other, then you're pretty much in for a hell ride. <laughs> um... I think awful is a bit of an under-descriptor. I think traumatizing, anxious, unfair, tortuous is probably better words. You're listening to QR Code, a queer health series that explores diverse and intersecting community issues. In this episode, we explore how conversion practices and ideology can be linked to the current religious freedom and discrimination debate in Australia including the federal government's proposed religious discrimination legislation. Yeah, that's a really interesting question. I um, spent a bit of time going through the legislation 
and it's it's horrendous in short. But I think there's there's a couple of things. One of the things is this kind of nebulous idea of protecting people to making a statement of belief in good faith. Whatever that actually means is really undefinable. So there's a question about, well, what's actually a core tenet of faith and how do you actually say what is and what isn't? I mean, we have so many denominations within, within Christendom because they can't agree what their core tenets are anyway. So that I think that's one side of it, which makes it really easy, I think, for someone to turn around and say, oh, well, it's my it's a tenet of my belief and I'm making the statement that this person is broken because they're trans and they need to be fixed. That's a statement of belief. And so I can't be held accountable for that because I'm making that statement in good faith. I have religious freedom to make that statement. So that's one thing. The other thing in the legislation, which is quite alarming, is some of the clauses around the the registering of practitioners and things like that, which will, what would happen would mean that you could have someone providing conversion practices in a professional manner at the same time being registered by a board and that registration could be not be able to be removed by a registering body on the basis of those practices because they could claim that it was a statement of, that was part of their faith. And so um, it's a bit nebulous how that will actually, if that clause was those clauses were to be included in a final legislation, how that would actually work. Yeah, I think it's important to connect the two. I think the religious freedom debate as like a queer person and a person of faith has been really interesting because I think often what's not talked about is actually like our freedom to have religion and to be able to practice that safely and to literally be able to live because like sometimes queer people are dying because of the way that people practice their faith and because of the harm done to us and our mental health is a lot worse so I think that that's a somewhat harsh thing to say but actually a reality that I don't ever see in the debates is people caring about the queer people and people actually marginalized by those in Christian communities which is not just the queer community so I think it's important to connect it in that way and think about queer people's freedoms to practice their religion as well and then I also think it's important when looking at the current religious freedom debate is to look at the language that used, which is really interesting, which is actually like a specific sect of Christianity. And it's like that kind of, and it is the ones who often would practice things like the conversion movement and are wanting permission to practice that. And it's very evangelical, conservative Christian language. It's not actually the majority of Christians in Australia. The language that's used is like a very specific brand. And I think a lot of people are missing that. Yeah, they're really actually wanting to protect and even enshrine, I'd say, a particular brand of Christianity in the religious freedom debates. You're listening to QR Code, exploring conversion practices and ideology. We also explore the question, should governments in Australia ban conversion practices? I think that the word ban is an interesting word. In other parts of the world, uh, you've seen legislation that uses this language of banning gay conversion therapy. I think each of those words needs to be challenged. So we talk about banning. It's very hard to ban something in this way. I think there needs to be legislation that actually includes a package of responses, including addressing advertising, uh, transmitting the ideology, 
which in many ways I think is really a form of vilification because if you openly declare that queer people are broken, then that's a vilifying sort of claim. There needs to be protections for children in school. There needs to be clearer definition around what constitutes pastoral care. There are so many relationships in this country that come through religious communities, professional bodies, and even workplaces that are labelled as pastoral care, but still have a power dynamic and the ability to cause harm. In terms of uh, banning formal practitioners, so psychologists and psychiatrists, they are already effectively banned from administering conversion practices, particularly through APRA and their regulating bodies. Counselling organisations, well, counselling is not regulated in, in Australia in the same way that psychology and psychiatry is. But at the same time, if you claim that you're going to be able to change someone's sexual orientation or gender identity and then charge money for that, you know, then you're really being fraudulent. So I think addressing that through legislative measures that address therapeutic fraud is probably helpful. And then we also want to see a public health campaign so that some of those large queer health organisations around Australia can really get stuck into challenging this messaging that people are broken. That word broken is not a term that has any credence in any professional sort of allied health body in Australia, yet it's language that just proliferates throughout many religious communities. It's a very tricky one. I was uh, last week. I was speaking to the state government, and I was, they were consulting myself on on behalf of QMaker about this. And the difficulty is this: How do we ban something that will a go underground and b that doesn't impinge on religious freedoms? Because the last thing you want to do is to give people extra fuel for this. They say, "Look, you know, the queer people are trying to take away our religious freedoms. It doesn't help anyone." And the second thing is, if they change the coding of this conversion practice to we'll just pray over you or we're doing a spiritual help, then it becomes almost near as impossible to ban, so to speak. So I think the narrative needs to change in the sense of this is corrupt theology, a theology that teaches that man is broken because he has no control over his sexuality. That needs to be changed. Because we can change the conversion practice, we can ban it, but unless we get to the root problem, which is corrupt theology which is bad cultural influences classified as religion, then we're not going to get anywhere. I would say that, yes, we need to ban like formalised conversion therapies, you know, particularly anything to do with sort of psychology, counselling, minors, things like, you know, people being forced to travel overseas to undergo conversion therapies, all of that sort of stuff. But I'd say that that's kind of some of the extreme stuff and actually isn't what damages a lot of us. Like I never went through it. And I'm still undergoing counselling years later because I'm still unpacking all of the things that I internalise. Like you soak in it for years. And those messages are far more pervasive and are widespread in, I'd say, most churches throughout the country. And so I think we need to actually consider things like education, things like actually making people aware of what's going on, the the impact of their messages I think storytelling is incredibly powerful and that's something that you can't legislate. So I think we've got to think sort of broader than just legislation about these issues because I actually don't think that that will actually reach into churches. And sometimes Christians, we have a tendency, all of the stories that we grew up with, the heroes are kind of persecuted. Like you look at Jesus, you even look at like David and Goliath, like, oh, he's facing off a Goliath. So we love the narrative that we too are persecuted. We have a bit of a persecution complex. So I think sometimes we also have to be careful in these debates in being aware of Christian's persecution complex and sort of taking that in consideration. Because when it's just sort of blatantly attacking rather than I think storytelling and broader and engaging with people at where they're at, 
uh, people go, oh, you're against Christians and it's happening so much in the religious freedom debate. And they go, oh, you're attacking Christians, you're attacking us. But actually it's actually just, you know, a fair discussion. But we love to think we're persecuted sometimes because that's all the heroes in our stories. You've been listening to QR Code. QR Code is a queer health series produced at community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia on unceded Wurundjeri land. To download our episodes, go to 3cr.org.au forward slash QR code. Thank you to the Community Radio Network for getting the series out to you and the City of Yarra for their financial support. For more information about queer conversion practices and ideology from survivors' perspectives, go to the Brave Network on your search engine. If this episode has caused you distress, you may wish to contact QLife on 1800 184 527 or Lifeline on 13 11 14. Links will be published on our webpage. Our theme music is Ritual for Transformation by Michaeli Veshaw. My name's James McKenzie. Thanks for listening.